This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman, brought to you by Ends Group Insurance. Ends Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. Midlife Mail Podcast time. Greg Scheinman here with you. You like Tex Mex? I love Tex Mex. I'm in Houston, Texas. We have some of the best Tex Mex in the world. One of my favorite places, Gringos. On the show today, CEO and founder of Gringos, along with Jimmy Changas, Burger Libre, The Lunchbox, Mr. Russell Ibarra, super successful entrepreneur, conscious capitalism, philanthropist, husband, father. The guy's got a really impressive background, really great story. I was fortunate last year to have Jonathan Kim on the show. He's Russell's COO, super guy as well. Jonathan introduced me to Russell. We sat down at the original Gringos to record this episode. It was a lot of fun. You guys are going to learn a lot, become a big fan of these guys. So let's get into it with Russell Ibarra on the Midlife Mail Podcast. Midlife Mail Podcast time. Greg Scheinman here at the original Gringos with Mr. Russell Ibarra. Russell, good morning. Thank good morning. You. I'm glad to be here. So we're a little late in starting it this morning because I get pulled over for speeding on the, on the way here by one of Houston's finest. And he asks me where I'm going. I've got a 9 a.m. at Gringos. I'm, I'm three minutes away. And he says, I love that place. Well, that's a good thing. Um, a lot of officers do because we support our law enforcement community all the time. It's timely, uh, and you actually put out a tweet the other day. There was a reference to an incident that happened at Starbucks was where they asked some officers to right. leave because they were made to feel uncomfortable. Uh, I love the position you took. Tell well, me about a, a particular uh, Starbucks, I believe it was up in Portland, uh, six officers were getting their morning coffee and apparently a, a customer of Starbucks walked up to one of the baristas and said that uh, they felt uncomfortable because of all the officers there and wanted to know if they could ask them to leave and apparently the barista did and uh, so yes I put out a tweet basically stating that if that were to happen at one of our restaurants uh, where a guest may feel or a customer may feel that uh, they're uncomfortable because of officers being there we would kindly ask that customer to leave not the officers. What was the response that you got? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, positive, 100%, uh, mostly 99.9% positive, but, but there were so many shares on that, on that post that um, uh, I was getting some negative comments from people all over the country, a few, mm -hmm. and you could tell they were just kind of phantom accounts because there wasn't much to them. And they would uh, call. They were calling us uh, bootlickers, and I had never heard that term before. And some other uh, derogatory comments about our law enforcement community, which was pretty sad if you think about it. But I just uh, I blocked them and deleted the comment. Yes. When you decide to put that out there, and you're definitive in, in your views, and, and you're in a leadership position, yes. And there's been when you decide to put that out there, do you consider? The, the potential backlash well, you're putting it out personally versus the business <clears throat> but there's always an association right right no you're right and um, 
Uh, when I go around giving uh, speeches to groups, I share my, my social media uh, accounts. Uh, and it's all Russell Ibarra. I'm not going to hide behind some funny name. And, uh, and I tell them that most, 99% or not almost 100% of my comments on social media are very, uh, they're not political because, you know, our, our, our rooms, our dining rooms are filled with both Republicans and Democrats. But this particular incident was not about politics. It, it was really just about doing the right thing. And, uh, and there was some, someone that made a comment on Twitter uh, saying that I, making, making the comment that I should stick to basically making margaritas and chalas and not get political. But I responded this was not a political issue because it didn't matter what that person was. I didn't care if they were Republican, uh, Democrat, black, white. I, don't, I didn't care. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter because law enforcement is law enforcement and they're here for all of us. And that's who you call when you're in trouble. So why should it matter? And the hospitality industry, and particularly with your restaurants, are very personal. You talk about family, there's family recipes, you know, your personal pride in delivering the guest experience and the best product, and you walk in and I see a sign right over the kitchen about making the perfect plate. So do you really, do you detach kind of the personal from the professional, or is everything you do the culture of the of the restaurants, the community, the experiences, is it a reflection of your, your personal beliefs and values also? I believe uh, in order to develop a culture in a company, there has to be a passion behind it. And unless there's a passion, I don't believe it'll go anywhere. Uh, so, I, you know, I live, eat and breathe this brand, and so do a lot of other people in the leadership role of this company. And I could line them up, uh, just every one of them here in this restaurant right now, and they would tell you how special Gringo's is, and it's because of the culture and, and how we treat our people and um, how passionate we are about the brand. How did you develop that culture and your, and your belief in culture, which again transcends the food? There's right. a lot of people out there making right. Mexican Texas right. food. You're right. Um, and you know, the, just the understanding, you're saying, okay, this is the way we're going to build the culture of a company. It almost doesn't matter what our widget is, if you will. Right. If we can build the culture and the passion, where did that education or that mindset come from? I guess it came from the fact that I do not have a formal education. And so how do you compete by comparison unless you have something that's intangible, such as a culture? And um, it's, it's, it has served me well uh, because uh, it is a point of difference that I think a lot of companies wish they had, but they don't understand how to get it. And uh, so, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy that I'm on the road that I'm, a, I, I'm on and that it, it, it took me this direction because mm -hmm. that is Gringo's in a nutshell. And taking it a step further, you're, you're very open and you share and you speak a lot. And I was having a conversation yesterday with an up-and-coming restaurateur. Okay. Three locations, mm -hmm. if you will, great business, um, but sitting there you know, at 6 o'clock at night and she's still got her laptop open and I went in to order some food on the way, on the way home because I have to pre-eat before I get home and the family comes charging at me and two hours go by. And I stop in. And I really enjoy the conversation about the struggles and the trials and tribulations of owning a concept and getting it going. And it was the first vacation she and her husband had taken in, in years and pointing out everything. But what struck me was her openness about sharing information and talking about getting together and sharing versus people that hold things very, very close. And the, you can have a great idea and people are proprietary about their idea, right. but it comes down to execution. Right. You know, a lot of people think there are secrets in this industry. You know, literally, you can Google recipes to some of the biggest brands out there, 
but it's more than that. It's a lot more than that. And so I'm, I'm very open. Um, I just came back from Las Vegas with uh, Shokat Dahani, uh, who's a one of the largest Burger King franchisees in America. Also owns a ton of uh, Popeyes and Wendy's restaurants. Uh, I believe over 1,100 of them. And uh, they they recently purchased La Madeline and another brand, which is Mexican food, called Cyclone and Ayas. Mm -hmm. And his son, who's a, a business graduate from U of H, uh, Usman, he um, is very young and very green, if you will, in the Mexican food industry. And so we reached out to them. We said, look, um, you know, uh, we're an open book. You're more than welcome to come. And he's, he, he's already taken us up on it, but basically toured our restaurants. And we told him, you can have access to anything and everything we have. There's, yeah, again, I'm not, uh, and, and because at the end of the day, um, most people, most restaurateurs do not really want to copy another brand, but they would like to see the, the base of what it takes to create something so they can create their own spin on it at the end of the day. And that's what makes eating out fun, all the differences. Uh, the last thing you want is for every restaurant to serve the exact same thing. What makes it, as a matter of fact, Texas Restaurant Association has a slogan way back called eating out is fun. And eating out is fun when you when we get to enjoy all these different flavor profiles that are created uh, from various restaurants. And I'm, I'm just, I love the industry. Um, and I guess uh, having grown in up, grown up in it and the fact that uh, uh, it's, thank God it's Mexican food. It's a commodity. It's like Italian food. It's not going anywhere. And so we're fortunate for that. And But I will say social media has also changed the industry quite a bit. Uh, people will say to their laptop and, you know, make negative comments about your, your facility. And all they really had to do to resolve any bad experiences, if they had one, is to speak to a manager and we'll make anything and everything right. Uh, just give us the opportunity. There's no need to publicize it. And that's unfortunately what a lot of people choose to do mm -hmm. instead. You know. Is it hard not to take that personally? Uh, great, qu great question. Uh, you know, I had posted something on social media recently about consistency, the importance of consistency. And of course, McDonald's proved that many years ago that it's, you know, um, it's not about creating the best burger, it's just making sure that whatever you create, it's consistent. And if you think about the number of McDonald's there are and, and how you can eat a Big Mac here in the U.S. and one in China, and they're basically the same, uh, consistency is probably one of the most important keys to a successful restaurant brand. So uh, I posted something about it, and, and someone had made a comment, and someone that's actually a huge fan of ours, uh, his, his business is right across the street, Caroline Carpets. And so um, he made the comment that, well, I need to talk to you about something that's not consistent at your place. And I was like, well, what could that be? So I reached out to him, private message, and he, he, he told me that one particular item that we had um, wasn't consistent. So after doing some research and digging deeper into it, I, I found out what the problem was. And it was basically just a time issue of allowing something to marinate. And so we've already changed that procedure to make sure we're consistent there. But I will say that when we do receive um, a long negative comment or review about our restaurants, it, it is challenging because you, you know, human nature, it's automatically, you, you automatically get defensive about it because they're criticizing you at, at the end of the day. But you cannot take it personally. I mean, one, what we try to do is remove all the layers of emotion around that entire feedback, comment, review, and get to the heart of what exactly was it. 
because you know perception is reality and until we uh, step up to the plate and, and acknowledge that and, and we, you, you'll never be able to solve a problem and that's what we do and we try to do it all the time. Why are we here in this specific location? Great question. Because this is where it all started. Um, well, I say this building. This building was built brand new in 2004, but the original Gringos building is now the parking lot where you probably parked your car. And that particular building, uh, our family acquired it back in 1980 and opened up a family restaurant called El Toro in 1981, March of 81. I was only 19 years old. And I remember pulling up to that building and with my father and thinking to myself, wow, this is really nice. And, and compared to what our, my father had at the time, it was, a, it was a nice, nice building. It was 5,200 square feet, it had a split floor plan, and that was that. So we, my father acquired it from Paraland State Bank and opened up one of his restaurants, El Toro, and I worked there. And it was busy when we first opened, but it was just a continual decline after that. I mean, sales just tanked and leveled off at a number that was not sustainable long-term, and sure enough, six years later, uh, he decides to close it and turned around leased it to um, two other restaurants and then the third restaurant that came along uh, was a uh, lease purchase and not with the option to purchase but an actual purchase so he leased it and sold it at the same time but after the 60th day of being open when the earnest money was due for that sales agreement uh, he was out of there so the building became vacant again so it had been four failed restaurant concepts prior to Gringo's opening in, uh, in January of 93. Uh, but August of 92 uh, is when I made the decision to reopen the building because one of my duties at uh, the company I was running at the time, El Matador Foods, was uh, cutting the check for the building, the payment. And at the time, uh, it was a lot of money for, for a payment on an empty building. It was $4,852.10 a month. It's, it's a, it was so difficult to make that the number... Not to be specific or well, anything, like you don't it's, remember it's, this oh, it burned it, into your mind. Oh, <laughs> it is, yes, it'll be there forever. But it was so hard to make, and my, my, my main objective at the time was to offset that note as much as we could by opening, reopening this building. And knowing the history, it was, it, was a, um, it was a scary ordeal. I mean, because no one wants to go into a building that had already failed four times and try to make it succeed. You know, when we opened, people were saying, "Well, I'll give you two months." You know, and uh, but our, my focus was different. I had a, uh, it was no longer about making money, and it was all about providing the absolute best product and service that I could. And I was asked once, uh, "How do you know you were serving the best product?" And I said, "That's a great question. I was serving the best product that I knew how to make at that time." And I would like to think that today, 26 years later, I'm producing something far superior than the day we opened, and hopefully tomorrow. I'll be doing better than what I'm serving today because we're constantly trying to improve and find better better ways to do things. You referenced earlier no formal education. Right. And maybe a little chip on your shoulder, motivation to kind of, okay, I'm going to use what I have, you know, my, my street sense, my family experience. But without that, you also went right into a series of kind of very sophisticated transactions even that your family made in terms of a land purchase, you know? Right. Um, and then options to buy and be able to own and invest in the land and El Matador Foods, which is a manufacturing company too, which I want to touch on a little bit. 
as well, there's a lot of foresight in there too, that if we own the land and make an investment in the land, and we can also have an opportunity to maybe try and fail a few times too, because the value in, in the play is well, longer. The, well, the beauty of starting at the bottom is there's only one direction, you know? <laughs> but the, the fortune, I was very fortunate to grow up in the presence of a dreamer, my dad, <clears throat> and a visionary. Two things that are very, very, uh, were very key in exposing me to <clears throat> uh, the business world. So I did see a lot of good things, <clears throat> excuse me, and I um, saw a lot of bad things. And I tried to learn from each of them in their own way. I mean, for example, I remember once my father calling, calling up a banker who used to be in the uh, finance department of a dealership, automobile dealership in Laporte. And basically telling him off, telling him off, because he did not approve a loan from my father. This is probably the uh, early '80s, and and I, I heard him on the phone, and I felt terrible for that gentleman that had to hear all that. So after the dust settled, I called him back and I apologized for my father. I said, "Listen, I, um, I you know, he's just having a bad day," and and he said, "That's okay, Russ. I understand." And so I just um, I, again I tried to learn all the good and bad that I saw and, and, and I think when you pay attention to the some of the just the smallest things uh, details you know it can help you and when I was selling tortillas at El Matador one of my accounts was Casa Ole. and of course Casa Ole uses spice bags uh, for their consistency um, and that's what we do at Gringos and, and what's interesting is Larry Forehand started actually with, uh, the founder of Casa Ole started with Monterey House. And Monterey House had a central kitchen where they processed everything basically on their own, one roof and shipped out to all the stores. And I guess Larry didn't like that approach, so he wanted to do batch cooking in each location, but in order to ensure consistency, he, uh, he used spice bags. And a lot of companies do, but there are some operators that are very insecure and they don't want everyone to know the recipe, so they free pour. And the problem with that is it's going to be very, very inconsistent because uh, most free pouring, um, no matter how well you try to measure it, it's going to be off a little bit. It has to be very precise when it comes to seasoning, especially sodium and, and, and other things like that. So let's talk a little bit about getting, getting away from the business too because you're so heavily vested in the business. We can tell these stories. We can go back to El Matador. We can go through right down to the minute details and numbers of each location and what's paid. But let's talk a little bit about when you step away now at this phase of your life. Because when we talked earlier, we were talking about music and you're gonna get and you're gonna go on a trip and you're gonna go see can you step away now and kind of detach from the business and really just enjoy yourself? Yes. Um, two things that I did not want to become um, as a business owner, number one, I didn't want to become a financial burden. I didn't want my personal income to affect decisions that are made in the, within the operation. Because I don't think, I, I don't like that, that, because I grew up in it where every decision was based on what is the checking account balance. And so I never wanted to uh, live beyond my means, always below my means. And that's one reason why even today, Personally, I have zero debt, and I, I, I just prefer it that way. Now, business debt's different, uh, but I just prefer not to have any personal debt. 
So I didn't want to become a financial burden to the company. And I also did not want the company to be dependent upon me to, uh, to actually run it. And you can't if you have, you know, 17 locations. You just can't. And so you have to put people in decision-making roles and trust that they'll always make the best judgment for the company. And again, if you have the right team and the right culture, um, it, it can happen. And so that's kind of how it's, uh, it's, it's developed over the years. I'm very fortunate that it has. So yeah, I'll be taking a trip soon, and, and um, actually two of them coming up, but next week I'll leave for a little over two weeks uh, to Europe. And, and yeah, everything is, is, it should be fine when I get back. There, there'll be a chain here when I get back. <laughs> so while not to get too, too deep into this, the relationship talk about not being a financial burden to, to the company or making decisions that way, but also from your upbringing and where you came from to where you are now, knowing your own value also. I mean, obviously these are very successful ventures and, and you've done quite well for yourself there too. Your relation, what exactly is your relationship with money, knowing your value and saying, look, I've, I'm worth this too, you know? I can live well now, I can travel well, you know? You know, I'm, I prefer, I, I really do prefer experiences over materialism. Um, I have one watch, one Rolex, and it was given to me as a birthday gift. Um, I have one vehicle. It's a nice vehicle. It's a Mercedes S63 Coupe, but it's a 2016 with 17,000 miles when I purchased it. I didn't buy it new. Um, I do own a jet, but I bought it used, and I bought it because I do like to. I do like uh, jet travel, and and the person I blame for. For me liking it is uh, Tillman Fertitta because I rode on his Challenger 600 back in 2004 and it was like he gave me a drug because I was hooked and of course over the years I've chartered but uh, two years ago, three years ago we purchased a, uh, a Citation 3 and, and I paid cash for it. I didn't want, it, I didn't want a note on that. So, and, But it wasn't an overly expensive jet. It was, uh, you know, had, had some honors on it. But so we, um, I just, again, I, I don't, I prefer... I, I, I traveled when I was nine years old to Europe, and I guess that's when I caught the, the wanderlust bug. And, and I just love to travel. I love to see the world. I love to see different cultures. And, uh, and one of my dreams, hopefully one day, is to um, do a, uh, a show, uh, to, you know, Mexican food around the world or something. You know, Because mm -hmm. I, I love going to, that's what I do when I go to, I was in Japan last year in Osaka, and I found this really cute Mexican restaurant that was so tiny that you could almost stretch your arms and touch both walls. Um, and there was two people running it, the cook and the person that took your order. And the food was actually really good. And I took a picture with the, uh, the, the cook and uh, I just enjoyed it. It's just fun to do that. And, and, and you'd be surprised, you even get ideas out there mm -hmm. and good ideas that you could bring back to the States because you know everyone has these different ideas of, or interpretations of what food should look like, taste like. and. Uh, and it's fun seeing how it all blends and comes back to the States. You and the company are also well known for your philanthropic efforts yes. and, and giving back. Yes. Uh, tell me why this is so meaningful and so important to you. Uh, a couple of reasons. Um, when I was a young kid, for one, my parents did a lot of missionary work in terms of they would load their... Uh, a van up with clothes and Bibles in Spanish and take them to the heart into the uh, into the heart of Mexico in the interior and so I saw this as a young kid 
I saw how they uh, helped uh, build a couple of churches in the area. And uh, they did it. Um, they also, back in uh, 1975, they sponsored 10 families, 10 Vietnamese families to get set up here in the United States after, after the fall of Saigon, after the, at the end of uh, the Vietnam War. So I saw a lot of these things that they did, and they also helped a lot of people um, just with various, who had various needs. And so I saw that as a young kid, and it made an impression on me. But then after Gringo's opened um, in 93, and we started finally climbing and growing and experiencing a little bit of financial success, I was able to do things I had never done before. And I would, I would always, when I'm enjoying these moments, I would always think, number one, uh, you know, the people that helped me get here, being my, my fellow team members and the community for supporting us. So, you know, I, I just don't want to ever be the one that is the only one that benefits or succeeds from the successful, successful company. It has to be everyone, all the stakeholders, which are the employees and which are the community. And so we do a lot of, uh, of uh, charity work and, 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 and even like with Camp Hope, uh, helping our veterans who are suffering from PTSD. We do a lot for them, but I just like sharing in the success because it, it should not be all about the owner or the founder or myself. It just should not be about that person. Is there a defined personal and or corporate philosophy on, on giving? You know, the causes that you support, and you mentioned Camp Hope being, being one of them, because I know it, it, it must be challenging also to be inundated and bombarded also based on, on success and, and the difficulty in, in saying no. Right. Well, we do, um, within our marketing department, we do have a full-time community relations coordinator, Linda Vineyard, and she handles all donation requests. It's, it's gotten to where I cannot handle them because I receive too many. And, and uh, rarely do we ever say no. It all depends on what the request is. But um, we did, because of that, we formed a a foundation called the Tex-Mex Legacy Foundation, and we just launched it. Launched it, and actually, I believe next week they're uh, giving out the first of five one-thousand-dollar scholarships to team members that can use that to further their education. And so, I'm not on that board. It is a uh, a public foundation, and so we have to have you know some separation for legal reasons, so I'm not on it. There is a board. My full-time general counsel is on it and some other team members that make up the, the board to approve um, the disbursements. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular motto or saying, something that you, you know, live by, maybe by the bed? Or you know, I have a lot of them, but one of them, for example, that just came to mind is the most important thing in life is everything you learn after you know it all. And so I'm constantly learning and trying to improve as, uh, as a business person, as a human being, as a husband, father, now grandfather. And so, you know, it's, it really is about uh, this journey of li in life that, that you just want to become the best person you can become. And, and a lot of times it really isn't defined by, by materialism. Um, I believe in being kind to everyone. Um, I believe in... Uh, sense of urgency. I never want to treat someone who could potentially do a lot for me any better than someone who can do nothing for me. Uh, and I just, um, I just, that's just the way I look at people. Uh, one of the books I read many years ago, The Law of Success and 16 Lessons by Napoleon Hill, the very last chapter is called The Golden Rule. And in the book, in that particular 
chapter, The Golden Rule, he talks more about, or should I say less about the action and more about the thought process toward uh, wishing other people well. And, and for example, I believe um, in wishing even my competition well, that they, they succeed, because if they succeed, I succeed in different ways. And, uh, and one, for example, is um, uh, I love competition because competition makes me better. It forces me to get better. A lot of people are very insecure about competition, and I, I think that uh, we can all learn from one another. Uh, Prover- I'm not a, a religious person, but Proverbs 27:17, as, as iron sharpens iron, so one man strengthens, strengthens another. So it's it's a very uh, uh, meaningful verse because that is so so true. You've got a very calm demeanor and disposition, but there's a strength to it too. Well, don't don't mention this to my wife. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but with that, what riles you up, or what's going on, kind of behind the calm speech and kind of the strong eyes? Like, what pisses you off? What riles you up? Do you put that out there, or do you internalize that? Um, it depends. Um, for example, um, if I walk up and I see a plate of food going out and for whatever reason uh, they did not put the right amount of beef or chicken fajitas on a plate. When I say the right, uh, not a right, not right amount, I'm meaning they didn't put enough. Mm-hmm. That would get me more upset than had they put too much. I would rather lose money than thinking you're actually making money by not giving them too much because if you upset that guest, they'll come back, you've lost them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I mean, the, the day we opened up Gringo's on January the 11th of 93, um, knowing the history of the building and walking over to, to pull the string to the open sign, the neon open sign, and standing there waiting for that first guest to pull in the parking lot, there was a real sense of uh, gratitude that uh, you, it's, it's hard to explain because of, of everything you had got, I had gone through to that point. So. That feeling I got of seeing that guest come in and how we treated that guest from the time they walked in to the time they left, um, it's a feeling I never want to forget. And it's a feeling I hadn't forgotten because no matter how many restaurants we have, no matter how many guests we serve, when that door opens, that's, that's, where, I, that's where my mind goes. And it's all about them because they've done all this, not me, through their support. And, and of course, I need people around me to help deliver everything that I want to deliver to that person and that's that's how we've grown to this point and I hope it's scalable <laughs> because it does it does get more and more challenging uh, you know when you have one restaurant you can you can know the names of every person that works there almost you know but it's gotten to a point where when you have 2,500 employees system-wide there's, just, there's no way now and but but I, I, I always want to make number one every uh, team member feel important I never want them to feel invisible. What I mean by that is if I'm communicating to one of my senior leaders and a, a, uh, a busser or a hostess or a server is near us, I will always acknowledge them because I don't want them to ever feel invisible because I've been there and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Do you cook? Well, between my wife and I, yes. <laughs> and she'll, she'll admit that as well. But um, 
I, I don't get too complicated, uh, especially now, maybe more so in the past, but I don't try to eat as much as I used to. Um, I guess simply because of my age and metabolism, I just, uh, but I do try to go, we, we do dine out at least three nights a week. So mm-hmm. the other four we'll cook at home, but nothing extravagant unless it's a holiday uh, occasion. What do you look for when you go out? Uh, I'd prefer tried and true. My wife will always want to experiment the new, newest and hottest place that just opened, which we'll, we will patronize. But you know, some of my favorite restaurants, believe it or not, are other Mexican restaurants because I can actually relax in that building. Whereas if I'm in my own restaurant, my mind is not at the table, it's everywhere else. So mm-hmm. I prefer to be at a Mexican restaurant where I can focus on the conversation and all of my life. Do you take out from your own places? I do. I have, <laughs> and I do occasionally, yes, yes. Get in there, place the orders, take it home, make sure everything's yeah. right. So you're still kind of working a little bit? Yes, always. You're, I mean, it, it really is difficult to check out, you know. Um, I will say that uh, one of the best trips I ever took was back in 97 or 98. It was, a, it was a cruise in the uh, Southeast uh, Caribbean, and that's before they had decent Wi-Fi or self-service, and I was completely disconnected from the world. Mm-hmm. And it was probably one of the best feelings I ever had at that time. But it hasn't happened since <laughs> because of technology. Uh, but I do try to, uh, I do try to turn it off as best I can, especially when I'm out of the country. It's easier for me. I actually sleep better when I'm out of, on a vacation than when I'm home. You do a lot of public speaking also. You put yourself out there. Uh, people want your time and things. What do you want to be asked? Or is there something that you say, nobody, nobody ever asked me about this. I wish they would ask me about this. I get asked the same things over and over again, but I'd like to well, touch you know, on this. I, I do get asked a lot of questions, um, and mostly it's 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 directly related to what the field they're going into. Which, a lot of times, I don't have really any experience or expertise in that field. So, what I always try to tell people is, who is already doing what you want to do? Who is it, and who's the best at it? Go study them. Go study everything about them, and then try to find that one little point of difference that can make you stand out from them. And so, you know, everything's turning into a commodity almost. And, and so how, it's, it's a tough world. I mean, with, with Google and, and social media, it's, it's gotten more challenging. But then again, it's also gotten a little easier in terms of acquiring information. So it's at our fingertips, literally. Uh, you know, and, and when my father back in the 70s wanted to buy an avocado farm, I don't know what gave him that idea. When he went to Mexico to want to buy a pickled jalapeno plant, I, I, I didn't. How did he even think of that when he had a central kitchen set up in Baytown where he processed uh, refried beans and some other items in these 60-gallon growing kettles? How did he know to even do that? Uh, so that's why he was a visionary and, and a dreamer because uh, his parents divorced when he was three years old. At five years old, he was dropped off at his grandmother's house by his mother along with his older sister, and he thought that he was being dropped off to spend the night, when in reality she was dropping him off permanently to be raised by his grandmother. Mm. And so that did a number on him mentally, and it maybe had given him the drive to be that dreamer of, of something bigger than he ever imagined. And, and uh, because he had also injured his arm 
playing uh, football in junior high, and it never grew back properly. Uh, he couldn't pass physicals to even get a job anywhere. So he had to go into business for himself. And I'm, yeah. I'm grateful that he did. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have six brothers and one sister. And where are you? In the I'm number three, and we're all in the same business. You know, I have one brother that owns uh, the Altoral Chain, which was the family business. Actually, four of them work together. And then um, I have another brother that uh, owns Iguana Joe's, another one that owns uh, Giant Tabalis, and then the El Matador, and then, of course, myself. So I believe between all of us, there are 30, 32 restaurants. And then uh, collectively, I believe we generate uh, combined revenue of over $150 million, or maybe 160 a little healthy competition amongst the siblings. Yes, too. yes, yes. Because <laughs> that conversation around the table. <laughs> you know, we uh, we throw ideas at each other. We share ideas. Uh, at the end of the day, I want them to succeed because I don't want to support them. <laughs> Bottom line, I want them to succeed. Definitely. Yes. How do you meet your wife? Uh, at a junior high party. Actually, I was in high school. She was in junior high. She was an eighth grader. I was a junior in high school, and we had a mutual friend that invited me to a party. And I had never seen her before, and I walked in and laid eyes on her and thought she was the most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. And so uh, we were boyfriends and girlfriends from that, almost from that point on. And, of course, you know how, how it is in school. You break up, get back, break up, get back. But, uh, yeah, we've been married a number of years, and uh, we uh, just celebrated our anniversary in June. And how many children? Uh, just two boys, and they both work with me. Uh, my oldest son, uh, I, I jokingly tell people that I never, I didn't, go to college, but sometimes I'll say, yeah, I went to Yale. I, I didn't go to Yale, I just paid the tuition for someone else to go to <laughs> Yale. So my oldest son graduated, did all seven years at Yale, and then he went to Wharton and got his MBA, and now he's working with me. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you mentioned grandchildren. Yes, I have three grandchildren, two boys and a girl, a young girl, a uh, two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old, and a one-year-old. So how is this next phase of life? laid out for you. You've got your, your sons working in the business, you're a grandfather, you're building a new home. What's, what's the layout for this, for this next phase? Well, <clears throat> business or personal or? I think all. I mean, we well, you know, really I, touch on kind of work-life balance if there is such a thing. Well, I've, I've always said that um, one at a time, you know, open one restaurant, let's make sure it's working properly, running properly. Um, and uh, if, it, if it does well, we'll, we'll consider the next location. I've never wanted to, uh, to grow at a, at a point where your, the culture gets diluted. And I think it can easily happen when you start adding 10 locations a year or 15 or whatever. And, and um, of course, it's a, it's a very slow type of growth. But I mean, here we are 26 years later, and we have 17 full-service restaurants, which isn't bad. I, I did. Um, grow with um, some partners, franchise partners, Joel Perkins and Kevin Carroll, mm -hmm. both homegrown. Joel was my second general manager. And when I was interviewing Joel back in 95, late 95 to open up Gringo's number two in 96 in Laporte, uh, Joel, uh, I interviewed him five times. I put him off, kept putting him off because um, I didn't have the money to bring him on too soon and pay him. So uh, he must have he, he must have started getting a little frustrated with me not giving him, a, uh, not hiring him immediately. And he told me, Russell, if you hire me, I'll run that restaurant as if I owned it myself. 
and today he owns five of the Gringos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of prophetic. But the interesting uh, story of how Joel and I met was first off when in, in the '80s, one of the companies that I'd seen growing throughout Houston and doing a fantastic job at it was the Pappas restaurants from Papacitos to Papado, Pappas Seafood House, Brisket House, Dot Shop, and so. I just love the way they operated, uh, their systems and procedures and the product they put out. Um, so what I always told myself that if I had any hope of being anything like them, I had one of two choices, either go work for them or hire someone that worked for them. So uh, when my wife was teaching kindergarten in the early 90s, and the reason she did it was because she wanted to send both of her kids to a private Christian school in Pasadena. And in order to offset the tuition, she was a teacher kindergarten teacher, which I think is the hardest job in the world, but anyway, so she was a kindergarten teacher, and one of her students must have been very, very proud of her her father, and she would walk up to Monica and say, yeah, my daddy, he's a general manager of Papacitos. So Monica would come home and tell me the same thing. One of my students, uh, her daddy's the general manager of Papacitos, and this is when I still only had the one Gringos, and so when I started developing the second location, knowing that I wanted to be a lot like Pappas, and going back to what I told you earlier, find the best who's doing it, try to mimic them, and and so anyway, um, uh, I went back and uh, when I found out Joel was no longer with Papacitos, and I was looking for my general manager for the second store, our family tortilla factory was delivering product to the restaurant he was working at, which was the Kima Cantina, which is now the aquarium restaurant today, and Joel and I, that's how we, we started meeting to... Uh, uh, to begin the process of him working as my second manager. And is that what you still do today in terms of finding partners, relationships? I mean, you've had, sure, lots of opportunity to franchise, lots of opportunity to just expand, maybe even go public, whatever, whatever it may be. But it seems like the vetting process for you, from a commitment standpoint, who you want working for you, who you would want as a partner, is, is pretty deep. I will say that, uh, uh, and this is nothing against my two partners, uh, Joel and Kevin, but this is a very, very difficult business to be in because there are so many moving parts. You know, you take a, let's say a Chick-fil-A, for example, all of their issues are from the counter backwards, mostly. Uh, They don't have front of the house issues because they don't provide full service. It's QSR and they're able to, to focus in, the, in those areas and execute at a high level. When you start dealing with uh, servers, and our restaurants, the one we're in now is close to 11,000 square feet. We have approximately, um, uh, let's say 20 server sections, but I think maybe one less. And a server section is basically three, three tables. So when you have that many server sections, you have to staff three times that number to completely staff your restaurant to cover every shift throughout a uh, seven day week. And that's very, very challenging for your management team because you constantly have to interview, hire, and train. And you, have this re- you always have this revolving door of a certain number of servers that are going to school or quitting or going to another job or what have you. And so they have to learn everything about the food again. And, and it's, it's just a challenge in business for that, for that reason alone, uh, food knowledge, uh, menu knowledge. And so um, I wouldn't recommend this industry for anyone unless they've worked in it first. They've had a lot of experience working, and Joel did, of course, and so did Kevin. Mm-hmm. And, and even despite that, the challenges that they face even 
every day is, is incredible. All of us, we all face it every day. And I always tell them the beauty of it, mm -hmm. though, at the end of the day, is our competition is facing the exact same thing. So that's why if we can just focus better on our challenges and, and resolve those, um, you know, it should, it should, we should be okay. Uh, just, you know, focus on making the main thing the main thing. What's your daily routine now, and how has that it's, maybe evolved? You know, I, well, I mean, I wake up around the same time, between 6.30 and 7 every morning. Uh, I'm not the kind of person that likes to just linger around the house before I leave, so I uh, hop straight in the shower, and go downstairs, have my coffee and my little packet of oatmeal. Uh, I do the non-flavor because I like to add my own sugar to it because I don't like all that natural flavor and stuff. And, and I'll have that and my coffee and I'll listen to Michael Berry on the radio to, on my way to the office. Or what I'll do too is I'll, I'll usually hit one of the stores on the way in, whether it's the original Paramount Town Center Gringos or Jimmy Changa's Town Center, Stafford, Port, or I'll head down south to Texas City and uh, League City to hit those two stores. But um, I try to change it up. I, I, like to, uh, I like to visit the restaurants in the early morning hours because I get to see how they left it overnight. Mm -hmm. and, and that way we can address those issues. Uh, it's hard to measure uh, the cleanliness or organization, should I say, during the day because you're busy and things are, there's a lot of moving parts. But how they leave it at night is pretty much the standard, you could tell, uh, especially when it comes to uh, grime and grease and all that kind of stuff. So uh, when they know you're looking and watching, um, they, they, the standards automatically go up. Mm -hmm. But then I'll go to the office and hang out there, and, and I try to meet with all my, my senior uh, people like Jonathan Kim, Heather McKeon, who's my chief marketing officer, uh, my full-time general counsel, uh, Al Flores, will we'll talk and he'll just up, update me on any pending litigation matters or just whatever's going on. And fortunately, we don't have a lot of uh, litigation pending right now, but he does help um, he's been a big help with helping some of our staff that may have uh, immigration status issues uh, mm -hmm. where it's just not 100% clear. So he works with them uh, to get those cleared up and uh, does a lot of pro bono work for our uh, team members that have just whatever it may be, you know. Um, and then um, our, my CFO, we just hired a new one recently and, and uh, he's fantastic and so I'll meet with him as well. And just try to focus there and, and you know, we spend a lot of time on new marketing ideas, uh, what we call LTOs, limited time offer items. Uh, we like to keep the menu fresh, um, just new and exciting. Mm -hmm. So so mm -hmm. you don't become stale in this business because it's easy to. What's your favorite meal? My favorite meal, oh man, that's a tough question. I mean, I mean, of course I love pizza. Who doesn't love pizza? But uh, I just love a good old cheese enchilada with chili con carne and uh, refried beans. And, your queso and taco meat. I'm just your, your the, the holy trinity of Tex-Mex, you know, the, the queso, the taco meat, and refried beans. Uh, it makes great nachos, you know. So I just uh, keep things really simple. Uh, I enjoy a good steak from time to time. Um, and I, one of my favorite restaurants is Ugo's on Lower West Time, Ugo <coughs> Ortega, because it's not Tex-Mex. It's, it's completely different. And he did a fantastic job introducing this food to Houston. Uh, it may not transport well to the suburbs because it is so different, and uh, he's but he's in the right neighborhood for it. Yeah, we love it. My wife and I. It's it's great pre-concert. Oh, it's uh, good. 
food. We stopped there. I, I may, I may stop by there tomorrow on my way to see Scott Stapp at the House of Blues. Oh, so. okay. Yeah. <laughs> a little solo Scott Stapp. Okay. Oh, without, it, without the rest of Creed. Oh, well, he sings all the hits <laughs> from Creed. But um, he's, been, he's been touring now with this, this same group of musicians, and they're really good and tight. I mean, they're just, it's worth seeing. It really is. I'll be there with my brother, who's a huge Scott Stapp fan. And it um, should be a good time. Nice. Okay. We covered a lot of we covered a lot of ground. Tomorrow, or actually, is it tomorrow? Is it Saturday? Saturday, Texas Restaurant Association deal event coming up. Yes, at the Marriott Marquis downtown. And you are getting an award. Yes. I'm getting an award for I believe the uh, top uh, political action committee con contributor. And I'm a big believer in PAC. I believe, you know, Texas is the greatest state in the union to do business. And we need to keep it that way. And we, you can only do that through supporting PAC, uh, through support, getting involved, engaged in our political process, and making sure that uh, our elected officials understand the challenges that we face as a, as a business. Because at the end of the day, all we're going to do is keep reinvesting in the community continue to hire people uh, one of the one of the I'm, I'm the number one pack contributor and one of the reasons there are a lot but one of the main reasons too is because they did the pack did something for for the industry recently that was uh, monumental and that was we changed the, uh, the liquor tax whereas before previously the liquor tax was a 14% tax that the consumer never saw on their check. So if you bought a $10 margarita, you, you the consumer paid $10 if you had a mixed beverage permit, that the business itself had a mixed beverage permit. But if you went down the road to a, a beer and wine um, business license and you bought a $10 beer, you would pay $10, $10.80 or $10.70 something because um, you paid the sales tax on that. But at, with a restaurant that had a mixed beverage permit, you didn't pay anything. So what we did, we carved out the sales tax to where now as a consumer, if you buy a $10 margarita, um, you, the consumer pays ten eighty because they're paying the sales tax on it, which matches the food tax. And so it's never been really transparent. And it's, it's uh, uh, unfortunately, we, we kind of figured out why they did that, why the elected officials did that. I'll get that in a second. So it was a windfall for the industry. Um, I mean, a good example. Um, if we sold $100,000 in liquor in one month from one restaurant, we saved $8,000. The consumer actually paid it, which I'm a consumer as well, so I'm paying mm -hmm. it. But what happened was this tax was already at 14%, which was getting a little too high. So the politicians reduced it to 6% and, and passed the 8% on to sales tax now, which you're going to pay it. But I believe they did it because now that it's 6 they can start going back up on that again. So... We'll see what happens, but we're, I'm, again, involved with poli uh, politics for that reason. Uh, Has this always been, it, it seems regardless, again, of being active in Patman, but this very analytical, quantitative, qualitative mindset of there's, there's probably something going on here. Let me dig in and see if we can fix this again, not just for myself, but for the greater community overall and look at it from both sides. Is this... Is this something you've always had, or you've grown into tackling more issues? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first off, my father used to have a little saying, and it's so true, 
He says your, poli your politics is all dependent upon which end of the receiving line you're on. And it is true. Uh, it's uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that it's, that's the truth. And I actually ran for city council in the court at age 22 and 28. And the best thing that ever happened was I lost both times because I was able to get back to work and start, you know, creating that, that, that platform that I needed to get to where I'm at today. But um, I, um, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> it was getting back to your mindset because as I hear you speak about PAC and almost any of the issues, it's really what, what caught my attention is how deep and analytical you get into it and understanding the issues and figuring out ways that can be beneficial to both sides. Obviously, which side of the receiving end you're on is is important. Well, you know, kind of light up when you're okay. Well, well, any any tax or permit fee that's passed on to the restaurant uh, as a way for government to increase revenues. Um, has to be passed on to the consumer and, and the cost of doing business. It just has to. No, there's not a business out there that's going to uh, continue continuously lose money because they just want to be a good neighbor. You can't. It's not. It's not sustainable. I mean, uh, it's going to close up, and that's that's a bad thing in the business world, and in 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 in, in general, just for the consumer, for the public. So, the lower we can keep taxes. The lower we can keep our prices. That's just that's just economics 101. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's at the end of the day what we want to do because you know let's face it, uh, I'm not sure what the average household income is right now at this moment, but uh, your average consumer only has so much discretionary income to spend dining out, and they want to dine out. They want to enjoy themselves just like someone that's eating at Tony's uh, restaurant mm -hmm. and spending hundreds of dollars per person. Uh, People want to enjoy themselves. Uh, a lot of people describe sitting at the bar as being their happy place because they can they can afford to have a drink and 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 enjoy it twice because of the taste and flavor and the value that comes with it. I mean, people feel good when they get a good value. They really do. They feel like you know, I'm, I'm saving money, which they are, and we get to get them more than once a week. I mean, there are some guests that come in here scarily uh, almost. Um, every day <laughs> I hate to say that but some do and uh, we're thankful that they do but uh, and they do because uh, we try to offer value you know each and every day what do you want people to think about you or if somebody was going to speak about you what would, what would you want them to say and, and and the second part is do you pay much attention? Do you care that much about what other people think? I, I don't. I mean, I don't care. Uh, I, I don't care a lot about what other people think because I can't control that. Um, what I can control is how I treat other people and in the hopes of treating people well and nice and kind, that that's how they'll speak of me. But again, however they perceive me, I, I can't control I, uh, how they see me. I can only control what I can portray. So. Uh, I really do try to, number one, honor my word, no matter what it is, no matter when I said it or how I said it, but if I said it, I'm going to deliver. Uh, uh, your integrity in this this world uh, is more exposed and open than ever before. I mean, all you have to look at is the Me Too movement, how many how things that happened years and years ago is coming to light today. And, and um, so your reputation is very, very important. And so protect it and guard it because it truly is the most valuable thing you'll ever own in your entire life. Uh, 
with it, you can continue. Without it, you're, you're basically dead in the water. And uh, there are a lot of people that want to remind you of it. So, uh, especially if it's a bad, if it's bad. If you could share a meal with anybody, and anybody come in here to the original gringo, sit across the table with you and share a meal with them, who would it be? Bono, from U2, the lead singer. Yes. <laughs> who I'm going to go see uh, later this year, in November, late November, December, I'm going to fly to Sydney, Australia to see him there. I'm going to fly over to Perth to see them there, and then Singapore, and then Tokyo. And I've seen them once before in Tokyo, and actually ended up staying at the same hotel as the band, and got to run into all of them. Even Bono, but I didn't really get to talk to him. He just hit me on the arm as he was walking out. And I told him, hey, Bono, we're here to see your, we're from the States, and we're here to see your show tonight, because I was trying to line up transportation. And uh, so, but I did get a picture with uh, Larry Mullen Jr., the drummer, and uh, the Edge. That was a good one. Super cool. What is, uh, what's next and exciting? New concepts? Are you trying new things, branching out a little bit? What, what are you working on? Well, we did launch a new burger concept a little over a year ago called Burger Libre, and it's a it's a work in progress. Um, you know, the most important thing in business is if you're not where you want to be, you need to constantly you need to change. You need to change. You need to listen to what your customers are saying. You need to always keep your ears low to the ground and drive that concept based on feedback. And so we're working with it. It's getting close to where we want it to be, and we would like to expand it. It's a lot like a Shake Shack and a Hop Dotty, kind of a blend of the two. More on the Shake Shack side, with a little Mexican flair because it's called Burger Libre. And we offer, for example, a, a taco, which is a very similar, but better, we believe, than, as the Jack in the Box style taco. And I don't know if you knew this, but Jack in the Box produces over 660 million tacos a year. I know I'm, I can't say I've eaten one, whereas I have eaten Burger Libre, both the burger and the taco, but I was always intrigued by the concept of offering a burger with a side in a way of tacos. Why not? You know, why not? Um, people love variety. They just do. I mean, you know, think about how you look at a menu and you, and you look at this item and this item and this item. You say, man, I wish I had all three. You know, and, and uh, you know, I would like one onion ring, for example, with my french fries. Just one. <laughs> then you and I get along great because I like to pick and I want different, and I want different things. I right. agree. I like the half and half. And I get some fries, some onion rings. I can get options. Funny story. We, we launched um, uh, wa fresh made or fresh smashed guacamole uh, in the Mocajeta Bowl at one of our stores. We did a test. It's a guacamole station. And it does okay, but there are some restaurants that do very, very well with tableside walk mm -hmm. because they don't offer any guacamole on any of the entrees. We offer guacamole almost on every single entree, so there's no really need to offer or mm -hmm. order a guacamole on the side and spend another $8, let's say. So, but at the same token, I don't want to nickel and dime a guest. I don't want to get greedy, you mm -hmm. know, and I think a lot of times businesses think that way more so than let's make the guests happy as we can so we can get them back. Mm -hmm. Because this business is all about repeat business, 100%. There are restaurants that open up and they're packed the first week and they're celebrating popping bottles of champagne because they thought they've already succeeded. But unless those people come back, you don't have anything. And I'm most paranoid when we first open a restaurant and the restaurant's full. Mm -hmm. That's when I'm the most paranoid. Yep, because you can be hot coming out of the gate. Oh. But it's, it's the marathon, not oh. the sprint. You're not, you're not kidding. Mm -hmm. 
who are some of the operators that you really admire? And then you look at it and you say, okay, they are doing it right. Well, food-wise, uh, for sure, Ronnie Killen's doing a fantastic job. I mean, he, he's, he's so passionate about the food. Uh, you know, he opened up a, uh, a Tex-Mex restaurant, or not Tex-Mex, but a Mexican restaurant called TMX. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, we reached out to him, invited him over, and he, he took us up on it and toured some of our kitchens. But um, I just love his passion behind food because it's, it's, he understands that it is all about the food. And so I, I definitely there. But as far as systems and procedures and operations, uh, it still has to be the Pappas's. I mean, they're doing, even now that some of the younger generation has joined the team, they're still maintaining a fantastic job. Are your friends mainly in the industry or out of the industry? Probably mainly in the industry, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mostly. Uh, um, I just, I guess because, you know, we, we can have a conversation and enjoy what we're talking about and actually just learn off of it, you know. Um, it, it's, it's amazing just the smallest things that you can learn from just hanging around your peers. Um, you know, and they don't have to be in the specific same business, I mean, uh, I mean or same cuisine. But, uh, yeah, I just, I mean, that's why I'm looking forward to this weekend and, and uh, meeting up with, um, uh, on Sunday I'm having lunch with uh, Johnny Caraba, uh, John Cornyn, um, Chris Pappas, and a few others at Papado there, George R. Brown Convention Center. That'd be a fun round table. Yeah, it's going to be a very small group. Uh, it is costing me some money, and not money you can write off, so. Uh, but uh, it is costing some, but uh, Cornyn is important in the, in the political arena, so uh, it's a good time to invite and talk to him and tell him some of the challenges we're facing. Russell, thank you so much for your time this morning. Oh, you're I really welcome. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome getting to know you. It's always best to talk to me in the morning. That's when I have my, my mind relaxed and focused. But in the evening, I'm exhausted. So, you know, my mother used to have a funny saying, you know, in the morning you want to buy, buy, buy. In the evening you want to sell, sell, sell. So <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's true. Well, if somewhere between now and then you go, wait, I should have said that, okay? Oh, just, no, <laughs> no. Shoot, just shoot it right over. But this has been a blast. I really enjoyed getting the chance to, to speak with you, get to know you a little bit, learn more, and, uh, and, and put some of these stories out there. So thank oh, you very welcome. much. Thank you. All right. Midwife Mail Podcast. If you like what you heard, give us a great review, just like in the restaurant business. Reach out, subscribe, give us the thumbs up, keep the midwife mail movement glowing and growing. Russell Ibarra, gringos, thank you so much for being here this morning. Where can we find you guys online? Awesome. GringosTextMex.com. And there it is. Okay, until next week. Thank you. We're out. You've been listening to the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheinman. Presented by Ends Group. Ends Group is ensuring success. For more information, visit endsgroup.net. Hey, I am a big believer that everybody has a story. You just need somebody to help you tell it. You know you have a book in you. You know you have that idea for a book that you have wanted to write. You just don't know how. Mascot Books is going to help you do that. Naren Ariel and his team at Mascot Books and Amplify Publishing are going to help you make your dream of becoming an author a reality. Check them out. Look them up. Go see them. Tell them I sent you. And become the author that you've always wanted to be. Mascotbooks.com.